As you all know, Art and I are big supporters of organics, so we are really excited to say that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Series Organics. They have a really wide range of certified organic products, chemical-free and with no genetic modification at all, ensuring a healthy future for you, your families and the planet. Hey guys. Kia ora gang. Hey, welcome to a really interesting podcast today. Uh, today we're chatting with Nicole Masters, who's an agroecologist. She's uh, basically an expert in soil and regenerative regenerative agriculture. Or regenerative ag, as those <laughs> of us in the biz like to say. <laughs> You're not in the biz. But anyway, it, it's a very interesting topic nonetheless. So Nicole basically travels the world and helps farmers to improve their farming practices, switching from a conventional way of farming back to a regenerative agriculture way of farming. Without chemicals. Yeah. And it's all about uh, basically improving the health of the soil and what that means for the planet. And we talk a lot about actually what is going on under our feet in terms of the life force that is in the soil. We talk a little bit about how soil can help the planet. And essentially help reverse climate change. Yeah. So this is a really, really important podcast. And look, I'll be the first to admit I know nothing about farming whatsoever. But if you are a farmer, I really think you should listen to this podcast or buy her book because it is seriously important stuff. So yeah, even if you have nothing to do with farming, like I found it so amazing. And I'm just like, you know, I've got a lawn, you know, soil (laughs) under the lawn. That's it. Like I found it interesting enough, you know, all the different microbes that are in there. And it's amazing. Anyway, we don't want to spoil too much of it. So let's get stuck in. (laughs) Welcome, Nicole, to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I am too. And yeah, it's great to hear those Kiwi accents. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so whereabouts are you right now? Right now I am in a place called Winnet, Montana, which is close to the boondocks of who knows where. Yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, how cool. I have a bit of a dream of Montana. I really want to go there just because I think I'll love it, oh, even though yeah. I've never really you know, seen much about it, but I just have this feeling that I'm going to love Montana. I really want to go there one day. Yeah, no, totally. I think most people that come here do fall in love with it. And it's quite interesting. It's the furthest I've ever lived from the sea in my life. And yeah, I feel so totally at home here with just the rocks and the big sky and the, yeah, mountain living. Mm. It's pretty cool. Oh, dreamy. dreamy. Um, hey, so Nicole, you're an agroecologist. Mm-hmm. What is that? So an agroecologist is someone that looks at farming systems with ecological principles. So how are things interrelated? What are landscapes trying to tell us? What does animal health mean about what's happening with our landscapes Um, and its relationship to food? So it's a super fun, very broad discipline. Um, That means sometimes I feel like a a jack of all trades, um, master of none. But, you know, like so I'm working with, Ranchers, I highly debate that. Yeah, ranchers and farmers who are really interested in how do we get systems to be restored, how do we get water cycles to to function again, and yeah, how do we bring life and vibrancy back to to production landscapes? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I uh, Maddie and I have just been having a look through your book. Actually, I um, for, for the, the love of soil. Yeah, for the love of soil, and uh, I was kind of just 
a bit blown away. I I mean, I kind of knew how, I guess, important soil was for the health of the planet, but I mm. didn't have, I had no idea how intricate and amazing and uh, just, like I was just blown away by mm. how incredible it is. It's essentially the centre of everything, yes, would you say? that's right, yeah. And when it comes down to it, Everything comes back to soil, and I think that's why for me it's never stopped being exciting, um, is just that relationship with it could be human health or planetary health, you know, everything comes back to soil. And it's one of these big breakthrough frontiers of discovery that's happening in science right now is, you know, not only we're discovering things about the human gut microbiome, but that relationship also with that soil gut microbiome and, and how there's these really interesting um, reflections really between that inner and outer landscape that, that gets me really excited because for me, human health is really important. In, you know, health of everything. Yeah. Mm. So, so before we uh, do a deep dive into that sort of thing, can mm. can you tell us a bit of the uh, a state of the nation of the soil at the moment? Um, so you're in the states currently, mm-hmm. um, and they have, in general, relatively poor soil health. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big country. So, uh, but yeah, I think of course, of course. what we see globally is that global soil systems have, have, have broken down everywhere, really. There's not a place that you could look to and go, oh, this is an exemplar of um, soil systems that are really functioning. So pretty much every um, country that you look at, their biggest export is soil. So they export more soil than they do any other resource that's, that's produced. So that could be mining or forestry or any of that stuff, we are really pumping soil out. Actually, probably not forestry now that I've said that. But, um, yeah, in terms of, like, grain production, we, we lose more soil than the grain that's produced above the ground. So are you, are you talking about we're losing that soil because it's getting washed away or it's, going, it's leaving with the produce that's being grown? Like, how are we losing it? So if you look at the New Zealand context, we lose about 198 million tonnes of topsoil per year, um, and that's just from our production landscapes. And so, yeah, it's moving with water, it's moving with wind, or it's moving down through the profile, um, forming hard pans. So, yeah, soil is moving, folks. Mm. Right. And Mm. topsoil, why is topsoil so important? Yeah, and I, I think it's a good question when you look at, um, like if you compare New Zealand to places that don't have topsoil, um, like Western Australia, and then look at, well, how much can you actually produce in those landscapes? How much water holding capacity have you got? What is the quality of the produce that we produce when you lose topsoil? So topsoil really is your bank account and the hospital of the planet. Mm-hmm. Right. Put it simply. So. Yeah. So when we talk about um, regenerative farming, um, mm-hmm. can you talk us through how does that work? Yeah, what is regenerative agriculture? What is regenerative? See, everyone wants this nice, clear definition, and unfortunately there isn't <laughs> one, which which I like because it's a very innovative space. But regenerative agriculture is really looking at outcomes. Are we improving the outcomes in terms of things like water quality or food quality or reductions in greenhouse gases, whatever? Um, and it's it's bounded by a series of principles as opposed to practices. So um, we can look around the world and say, okay, you can have these types of practices and it can be very dogmatic, whereas regenerative agriculture is about 
the principles of how do we increase diversity? Have we got green living crops in the ground for as long as possible? Are we minimizing disturbance? Are we reducing external inputs? Are we creating, um, you know, better quality product at the end of the day? And so it's not very clearly defined, which is driving the scientists and the marketeers and the politicians crazy. But in terms of us working in the field, it's incredibly fun and um, exciting to think of like, how good can you get it? And like, how much quality could we produce or how little inputs could we have? How profitable could we be? And some really interesting studies in regenerative agriculture have been looking at wellness. And um, you probably haven't got to this part of the book, but one of the one of the insights for me from interviewing people was really they talk about life before regenerative agriculture and then life after as being like total juxtapositions in terms of wellness and in terms of joy and in terms of feeling like you have purpose. You know, those three pillars of what makes people really um, fall in love with their work is purpose, mastery, and autonomy. And all of those three things come through in regenerative agriculture, which is you're really feeling like you do have a bigger purpose, that there's so much to master. It's not like the industrial model, which is you will spray this on this date. You will do, you know, this chemical for that. And it's taken all the creativity and the fun out of agriculture in a lot of ways. And so you meet people that really feel pretty downtrodden by the whole process. And through industrial agriculture, they've become less resilient. Whereas those involved in regenerative agriculture feel like they're building resilience and they're building something really for that future generation in real and tangible ways instead of, you know, most farmers and ranchers feel like they are stewards. You know, they really feel like they are they are wanting to leave a legacy for their children or they are wanting to leave the land in better shape. But the fact of the story is it's actually not true. It's not, that's not what's happening. And so in regenerative agriculture, really, you do know that you're part of a solution. And so it just, you know, it makes people buzz. It's, it's a super fun industry to work in. That's really cool, actually, because it's almost like the um, attitude of the farmers and the ranchers, as you're talking about, is kind of mimicking um, what's happening in the soil and the ground. Yeah. It's all all kind of getting a new purpose. It's mm-hmm. uh, becoming a lot more resilient. It's the same same yeah. sort of thing. You're kind of going through it together, which is quite That's cool. That's right. And I think that there is no separation of that. You know, there's no separation between land and the people that live on it. You know, to talk about nature like it's something separate from us, it's not true. You know, we are we are nature. We're all part of it. But what we've created are these systems that are just totally dysfunctional. And so you start to bring functionality. And, yeah, it, it um, yeah, for me there is no separation. Mm. Yeah, I think we've um, really – have lost our way in the way that we treat the planet and we kind of look at land like it's ours to use and to, mm-hmm. um, I guess, and to dominate. And, yeah, and dominate. Um, mm. But really it's completely something that is a living organism that we should be working with yeah. because we are all part of the same thing and we're made of the same stuff. And learn from nature because essentially like nature makes no mistakes, do they? No. no. So no. can you can you explain a little bit more about um, – I want to know a little bit more about soil, why, like how how it works and mm. why it's so important for sustainability, how mm. all the like microbes and all these mm-hmm. sort of things are interrelated and how it all relates to our health. 
Mm. So it's I think the best way to think about it and just a, like just a very condensed form is to think of it a little bit like the, your own human gut system, right? And so, you know, you chew on a piece of food, you make it smaller. Well, that's what the, the invertebrates in the soil are doing. So the slaters or the earthworms or the ants or the termites, right? So they're like the teeth. And then you swallow that and that goes into your that first part of your stomach, which is full of acid. So in the soil, we have... Um, specific fungi and bacteria that release really, really powerful acids to help break that down. And then in your stomach, that passes through that whole gastrointestinal system, which is just absolutely teeming with microbiology. And they break that food down so it becomes small enough to pass to the bloodstream. And in the process, they're releasing vitamins and hormones and um, all these secondary metabolites that make us well. And so if you look at human health as an example, they're now saying 100% of immunological disorders relate to gut health. So that could be... um, uh, you know, arthritis or Crohn's or dementia or PTSD or all of these things are now relating to, to human health. Well, the same thing's happening in soil. And so the way to think about it for the plant is that the plant's stomach is outside of itself. And so the plant and the microbial communi- community are in communication all the time. And the plant is signaling to the microbes Um, it'll say, hey, I need this kind of mineral or I need this kind of vitamin and it will feed them. So there's this constant um, exchange of I'm capturing sunlight energy and I'm going to give you some of these sugars and fats and things that I've captured from the sun. In exchange for that, I really appreciate if you give me these things. And in the process, that carbon material that comes from the sugars and the fatty acids and byproducts from microbiology build humus. So they start to build that sticky, lovely, dark brown crumbs that, you know, um, that, that beautiful colloidal structure. So when you see a soil, does it look like that lovely chocolate cake does it all crumble does it smell beautiful is it holding moisture that is all as a relationship between the plants and its gut system the microbiology so without that um communication link or if we have bare soil if we're cultivating if we're using herbicides fungicides pesticides soluble fertilizers all of those things actually um change the diversity of that soil gut system so think of it a little like in our own gut system. So I'm not sure what the stats in New Zealand are, but here in the US, 30% of the American population has a really compromised gut system. And it's because, you know, eating processed foods, you're only eating a couple of foods, like they'll have hamburger with an iceberg lettuce and that's what you have for dinner every night. Um, They are exposed to so many chemicals here, it's not funny. Like I was talking to some farmers recently about the beautiful smell of soil, like it should smell like on a hot summer's day when you get that rain falls on the road, you can smell that smell and you go, oh, I love that smell. Well, these guys said, yeah, well, you know what the rainfall smells like here? I'm like, what? And they're like, it smells like herbicides. There's literally herbicides (sighs) coming out of the air and in the rainfall here in these environments. So all of that is, you know, so that whole picture, hopefully I've painted is, you know, how soils, how soils build. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so that um, can can translate. So if you have poor soil health, that translates to poor microbiome in your gut. If yeah. you eat that soil that constantly, food. right? That's mm-hmm. right. So um, you know, we we as humans evolved with soil microbiology. That's part of our evolutionary story. Is soil 
microbes actually inside our gut system and populating us and on our skin and everything else. And so now we, in the industrial model, are basically trying to create sterilized, monocultural, low-quality systems that are full of the pesticides and fungicides, which are now required to prop that system up because that gut system's failing. So it's a little bit like the pharmaceutical industry, right? We're going to prop up a human being who's now on, you know, six different drugs, and then you're going to have to take another drug for that side effect. And so a lot of the chemical inputs that are used in industrial agriculture create what we call the unintended consequences. So they lead to some other problem. Uh, there's a very common insecticide that I would love to see banned in New Zealand. Um, I think it's currently banned in um, garden settings, and that's uh, neonicotinoid. They're also um, they're, they're marketed under things like gaucho, um, captain. Um, anyway, these seed treatments. Uh, what they do is they apparently they protect the seed from insect attack but they also change 600 genes in that plant that that plant needs for plant defense and cell wall structure so you're putting on an insecticide that then weakens that plant that now you're going to need a fungicide and you're going to need some nitrogen fertilizer so there's all of these unintended consequences that are happening in terms of the health of that system and so then with um regenerative agriculture so uh because we're kind of taught that insects are bad and we've got to figure out how, how to keep insects out of our gardens and our veggie patches. Yeah. Um, do you te- teach people how to learn, uh, how, how to uh, grow with insects and how to use them in your vegetable patches? Is that right? That's like, right. Do they have a place yeah. there? Totally. Um, but it's just changing our paradigm and how we see these things. So I see pests and weeds and diseases all as indicators and it's learning to listen of what is this trying to tell me and the same in the human body what is this trying to tell us about nutrition or microbiology so if you think about insect pests they're attracted to certain conditions in a plant when that plant um, doesn't have complete proteins when it's got imbalances and trace elements it basically just rings the dinner bell and says you need to come and clean me up and if you think of if one pest insect of it you know there might be only one pest for 1200 non-target insects so non-target insects means they could be beneficial or they're just hanging out so if you're using an insecticide on the one you're taking out 1200 but in that process the one that grows the fastest and reproduces the fastest is the insect pest so it's the first one that's back again and now you're having to put more insecticides on and more on and more on um, and the consequence of that is we're seeing um, what they call in the insect again. And so 75% of insect, the insect population has crashed. Now that is something for people to lose sleep over. Um, and that really started to escalate around the same time as those neonicotinoids were introduced. Um, we, the, at the moment, the scientific community doesn't know what's causing it. Like, is it climate change? Is it, um, is it chemicals in the environment? Is it because we've turned into growing monocultures everywhere and we're losing diversity of food? Um, but basically it's all of that, that whole picture of systems that are dysfunctional mean we're now losing all our beneficials. So we seem to focus on how do I kill it instead of thinking, all right, what's it? how do I get my, more diversity? How do I create a vibrant system? When you, when you say that insects have crashed, do you mean they've died? They've died, yep. Yeah, so the populations have... That's insane. It is insane. 
Yeah, National Geographic just did an update on it recently too because the, the scientific community is like, well, there's only a few studies and it's like, yes, but the studies are all across the world and they're all saying the same thing. So I don't know if you remember when you were a kid and you're driving along at night and how the windscreen would just get covered in insect splatter. You just don't see that anymore, yeah? You notice that? Well, you don't mm. remember? I mean, yep. I certainly remember it. Yeah, we. No, Maddie's noticed that because she's a very scared of most insects and I'm, bugs. Well, I'm very scared <laughs> of bugs, but but I appreciate their role in life. I just in the don't, ecosystem. Yeah, I just don't want them all up in my face. You yeah. know, I think that's okay. No. <laughs> no, but without them, we will be extinct, right? It is very scary because they are the bottom of the food pyramid. So yeah, exactly. So I can put up with them. Yeah, we're seeing bird populations doing the same thing. So our bird populations are crashing. And um, a big part of that will be yeah, they're running out of food. Man. Mm. So, oh, my goodness. Okay, so oh, no. I want to talk a about a little bit about um, insecticides, pesticides, chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the one that I think a lot of people probably know is glyphosate. Yeah. What is, or, or actually probably a lot of people don't know much about glyphosate, which is mm-hmm. um, commonly called Roundup, I think, mm-hmm. most, most commonly in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Why are they so bad for the um, soil and mm-hmm. for us? And what what mm-hmm. are the flow on effects? Like, does it does it have stuff to do with you know, like just like killing the soil pretty much so that it all washes away, can't hold water? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the deal? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's not just about glyphosate. And glyphosate's getting a lot of attention because um, there's a lot of court cases happening over here at the moment in the US. Um, I don't know how many. There must be over 10,000 court cases now. Um, So it's been linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, But the issue really is it's New Zealand's national drink. If you you get in a plane in those days when we used to fly planes over New Zealand and look down during spring, you'll see how much glyphosate is being used. Like it's it's insane. Um, And there's a couple of different things. So what do you mean? How how can you see that? Because all the fields will turn yellow and orange. Like you get this orange color. So, uh, you know, if you fly through, I mean, different regions, it it can be as much as 25% of the land area is just covered in this herbicide. so yeah, when next time and that just kills plant, off the plants. Just is to kill the plants, but there's a common practice in New Zealand that makes me want to vomit, which is that they'll actually feed um, they'll feed in lamb ewes or lambs on that grass, so they'll spray it out and then they feed them on that that's been sprayed with a herbicide, which I actually think should be illegal. And then they're marketing that wow, to the world. That would come through the food chain and then to it, us. It's, it's in the food chain to you guys. Yeah, so. In um in uh, the US right now they're doing Oh my god, a, how is that legal? I know. I know, because no one's looking and no one's asking these questions. Like, why are those fields orange and there's sheep on them with little lambs? Um so yeah, I mean for those who are listening, you know, when you see those kind of practices in spring, I'd be ringing someone, you know. And and, and actually this is the you know, the shift away from social license to do whatever you whatever you please anymore as a farmer. Um, I think it, those days have gone. Like we really need to be thinking in terms of health and nutrition and well-being, and thinking, oh, actually, this is going to be someone's dinner, and I've just done this and put this into the food chain. Um, but anyway, so glyphosate's linked to you know the the, the shikimate pathway, and the reason, um, and that's what it works on. So the reason that they put it through was they were like, well, humans don't have a shikimate pathway, 
and that's what it disrupts so in the plant but bacteria do and so your gut microbes do have this shikimate pathway um, and so it's disrupting gut microbiology um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that was a new study that came out showed that in Lake Erie which is one of these big lakes in, in the northern part of the US um, which has crashed it's eutrophied you know you've got all these nutrients in those waters so we're seeing this all around New Zealand right now um, is that it wasn't necessarily coming from the phosphate fertilizers, it was coming from the phos phosphate and glyphosate. And what the glyphosate was doing was actually releasing phosphate to the waterways, but also releasing bound phosphate off the colloid of the soil and then getting it into the waterways and causing these big algal blooms. So what we see in New Zealand, which is another thing that drives me nuts, is uh, that farmers were encouraged to put in riparian strips and then suddenly you've got all these weeds and all sorts of stuff growing into the waterways. So they come along and they're spraying glyphosate along the waterways. So now we've got this um, phosphate. So hang on, just a, a riparian strip, is that just a strip of land that's not used for farming or well, grazing? Well, they'll, they might plant like trees. If you drive around through the Waikato, you'll see how, you know, there's always these strips next to the water and where they don't have livestock in there because people were worried about livestock pooping in the streams. Um, and instead of having kind of like a whole systems common sense approach to it, they're just like, oh, we'll just fence them off without thinking, oh, well, then how do we manage that? Because really the best thing in how to manage that is actually to um, thoughtfully graze it, not just, oh, we're going to exclude everything and then have a whole lot of weeds that we're going to spray with herbicides. So in the Manawatu one season, and it's probably ongoingly, that whole river is sprayed. And then you wonder why we've got dead zones off the Manawatu and we have dead zones in the Hauraki Gulf, you know, like the the lack of foresight and thinking about some of this stuff just, anyway, it blows my mind, which is why we focus so on what we what, can what do. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Wow. So what exactly, so what's a dead zone? So that's basically you get a whole lot of um, runoff or uh, chemicals kind of infiltrating the waterways, which then flows out and then it causes a big algae, algae bloom because what I guess those like the phosphate or nitrogen yeah. maybe yeah. helps the algae grow too much yeah so you get phosphate and nitrogen just causing these big 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 blooms and then the blooms will actually die off and then in that dying off process they suck all the oxygen out of this out of the water so then all that will live in there is jellyfish so we're all going to end up eating jellyfish because the, the the dead zones now like off uh, off the states here are just I mean they're huge. These fishery beds last year it was the biggest collapse of of all time. So all these fishery guys were asking for payouts because there's no fish. Hmm. Oh my god! Okay, yeah, that's insane. I heard I heard um, something about dead zone off the Gulf of Mexico. That's the size of the state of New Jersey. That's the one. Yes. Oh. Which is crazy. Yeah. That's insane. So you have one in the Hauraki Gulf. Oh, mm. my goodness. Isn't that and interesting? Like the um, – I, yeah, I want to ask you hmm. is, you know, like we're, we're, we're – um, we grow up thinking that New Zealand's clean and green and that we're the um, most beautiful country in the world. Mm -hmm. You travel all around the world. Mm -hmm. You examine so many different um, – you know, parts of the Landscapes. world and, and yeah, and um, and farms and everything. And how do we actually compare? And how clean and green are we? Because I I've heard some things about some chemicals and stuff that were banned overseas in certain countries twenty years before they were even looked at in New Zealand. That's right. So we have a very poor record in terms of responding to 
um, agrochemical threats. So we are typically 20 to 30 years behind. So if you look at DDT, we were uh, yeah, 20 years behind on that one. Um, these neonicotinoids that, you know, even the, even the U.S. has banned, um, you know, a handful of them and we still haven't. Um, so, yeah, lots of very persistent chemicals we still we still use. Um, they're looking at reintroducing some of these, like paraquat's been reintroduced, um, which is the chemical I talked about in my book that I got poisoned with. Um, and so we just seem to be yeah, very slow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. We're very slow to respond um, and I don't know what it is if we're just a bit apathetic, um, if we're just a bit laid back and we're like, mm. oh, she'll be right, we'll just keep using this stuff. And and people say, oh, I've sprayed it all over myself and I'm fine. But what we're seeing is there's something called epigenetics and the research is now coming through to say if you're spraying yourself with these different types of ag chemicals, you actually change your gene expression that's altered how that gene's expressed for your children or your grandchildren. And so a lot of people that originally came into regenerative agriculture came because um, they had been ag chemical appliers and their kids were really sick, like um, lymphomas and leukemias and uh, ADHD, autism, Asperger's, though, you know, the, the spectrum of disorders that we're seeing. And they really got the impact of, holy, this was the, these are the ag chemicals that I was using and I've actually done this to my kids and the horror of knowing that. And so, yeah, that was kind of some of my early investigations was just seeing that in the community and, and you know, the, the, ag the ag community is just so loaded with chemicals. Oh, so before we get into um, how we fix all this and the yeah, hopeful thinking, part of the podcast. Was it really depressing? <laughs> Oh gosh. Anyway. No, it, it is like, I mean, I think it's good to kind of paint the current picture because like from what I've sort of been learning and from reading things in your book, like it seems like regenerative regenerative agriculture is the way to save the planet. Like it yeah. seems like it's the answer to the sustainability problem mm. and global warming. Mm. And, you know, um, it seems like for me, it seems like it's the answer. Yeah. And people need to know how how bad it is because I, f I feel like people kind of know that it's this problem going on mm -hmm. over there that's affecting some people and, you know, it's only small. But I, I think we really have, have to grasp how bad it is and, and how it's affecting everyone because yep. we had um, – someone from Series Organics, Noel Josephson, on the podcast. And he spoke about how it's not just about, you know, people over there mm -hmm. not eating um, or, um, or, or organic food or spraying their lawn, that's mm -hmm. their lawn, it's not going to affect me, yeah. that we're all affected by it now yes. and, and it's a human population problem and we all have to band together to, to save it. But before yeah. we talk about how to save it, I wanted to, to talk to you about a stat that I read in your book mm -hmm. um, and it is about the sperm count yes. in uh, in males in the US. Can, can mm -hmm. you um, tell us about that? Because mm. that really is quite terrifying. Yeah, so since 1975, every male born has half the sperm count of his father. And so um, if you think since 1975, so that the sperm count has dramatically dropped. So, you know, for me, uh, you know, I have concerns about population and, you know, the human spread across the planet. And I'm like, oh, actually, we're taking care of it ourselves. So there's links, unfortunately, um, to, to PBAs. We're self-correcting. Or BPA, sorry. Yes, we're self-correcting. So if you're, if you're pregnant, 
and you're drinking out of those clear water bottles, the just the disposable bottles that you buy at the gas station, mm-hmm. um, and those sit in the sunlight at any point, which they probably have before you got hold of it, um, they are affecting that fetus and and then that child will be born with this reduced sperm count and reduced size of their testes. Um, and so, yeah, there's some pretty good research in, into that. And it's just, you know, it's our chemical addiction. We are swimming in a chemical soup. And it's really been a very short experiment. It's been 120 years. And us humans are very slow to respond to things that happen intergenerationally. And unfortunately, that's, that is that is just our nature. And so it really comes about, I think, for this generation that's coming through now to be so aware and go, actually, no, I don't, I don't want something in plastic or no, I'm not eating industrial food and, and really thinking about, you know, connecting with who's producing that food and um, really think about what are you putting on your skin? What are you washing your hair with? Like that whole thing, like really do we need all these, these chemicals? And no, we don't because we don't know how they interact with each other as well. So if they do risk assessments on a chemical, it's just by itself. And it's like, but that chemical is never by itself. You know, I'm going to have, you know, in my shampoo Mm -hmm. like this, but then this is the pesticide I'm eating on that apple, you know, who knows what they do together. Yeah. Cause as a bit of a, a, a side note, I think as a society, we have to, um, stop being so used to to things being so easy and uh quickly available yeah because I mean like like even in 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 products I've spoken to so so many people that are really passionate about natural organic food mm. and and putting the best possible things into their body but but they'll use a, a heinous chemical filled beauty product because it works yeah so it's like we we have to kind of let go of our priorities a bit mm-hmm. when it's like oh but but this works it's the only thing mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm just going to use it yeah. I think we we need a real kind of mental shift there yeah so in New Zealand I think farmers get a really bad rap because yeah. uh there are there are some some farmers that are pretty crappy but but I think a, a lot of farmers in New Zealand are fantastic and they really want to um, do the right thing and and try and help help the planet as as best they can. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm speaking for farmers here. Obviously, I'm not one. I think a lot of them don't know where to start, yeah. or it kind of seems too hard. Yeah. So, what would you say to those people? I mean, the the real issue in New Zealand just has been that the advice and research has been so captured and. You know, farmers used to get free extension services until the early 90s and got used to have really good advice systems. And now those advice systems have been taken over by the, the chem, the chem providers. And so it becomes very hard to get independent information. And they also trust those agronomists. They trust those supply centers to, to be working for their best interests. But actually those supply companies are working for their own best interests. Um, and so it takes a real willingness to step outside of the box. There are some really good networks in New Zealand, um, discussion groups. Uh, there's a WhatsApp group that's just fantastic. There's stuff on Facebook to just, you know, connect with a local network to figure out, oh, okay, well, what would be the first step in this environment with this kind of crop that I'm growing and just go and visit people that have been doing this for a long time. You know, there's, I mean, many people that I kind of, you know, um, cut my teeth on, I guess is the words, Um, you know, 20 odd years that are still farming 
successfully now and you know they have such a wealth of information to share with people um so yeah i think it's really worth getting out into your community and finding out who's already doing this because the uptake in new zealand is actually pretty high and a couple of weeks ago new zealand merino made an announcement that they are going to do a regenerative um, label for new zealand uh, merino wool and um, the sign up for that was absolutely fantastic, which is really exciting. And they will help support those farmers through that transition of looking at. Uh, and, you know, many of those farmers are probably already doing a really good job. Um, but, yeah, we're seeing, you know, the dairy system starting to ask questions. Um, so, yeah, hopefully those levy groups are actually going to start to provide support to their farmers because that's, you know, that's really what they should be being paid for um, is to provide independent information that helps farmers build resilience and quality and profitability. And, um, you know, if you're on the chemical treadmill, it's hard to get all three of those things. Mm. Mm. So, and by chemical treadmill, what do you mean by that? Well, if you are using a whole lot of nitrogen, well, now you're going to have a whole lot of animal health problems. Now you're going to have a whole lot of insect problems. So you're using more antibiotics. You've got more somatic cell counts. You are putting on an insecticide. You've now got fungal diseases. You're putting on fungicides. So this is the treadmill I mean is that once you start putting in some of these inputs, you then need another input and then another input. And then it's really hard to get off that treadmill because that system is now I don't want to use the word addicted, but that's basically what's happening is it's now requiring those kind of inputs. And, you know, a lot of the cultivars and seeds and plants, you know, the ryegrass and clover mix that New Zealanders love so much is very much bred for those types of environments instead of looking at how do I increase diversity and, and resilience and have multi-species in these blends. Um, and what we're seeing is the farmers in New Zealand that are doing that are getting extraordinary results and it directly translates not only to like the quality of what they're doing, but actually animal wellness. And there was an interesting study out of Lincoln to show that uh, cortisol levels, so your stress levels of the cows are higher when they're, they're eating ryegrass and clover if that's the only food that they've got. So if they're eating diverse blends of different species, their stress levels, their cortisol levels go down. So it's actually an animal humane issue if you're only feeding those animals ryegrass and clover, which is like, I'm only going to feed my child broccoli. Sure, it's really great, but that's the only thing that child's going to eat. You're going to have some, you're going to have some health issues. Yeah, for sure. Here's a quick message from our sponsors, Series Organics. Have you thought about what goes into your food? Does the thought of artificial additives in your food put you off? Organic food is not only free from chemicals, but it's also supporting the farmers to create a more sustainable future. Series Organics have been in the business of supplying Kiwis with easy access to organic food for nearly 40 years. They have a wide range of wholesome products from delicious snacks to pantry essentials. You name it, they'll have an organic option. You'll find them at your local supermarket or health food store. Just ask. Otherwise, check them out at www.series.co.nz. That's C-E-R-E-S you mentioned in your book that the farms that you work with, farms and ranches that you you know work with and you've helped to, re- I guess, regenerate, they have been experiencing the same, if not better, um, production and growth and mm-hmm. everything's going really well, yet they haven't needed to have any, well, or, you know, any uh, inputs. Mm-hmm. And so it hasn't cost as much to run their farms, right? So yeah. they're more profitable? Yeah. 
Is that right? That's right. So the ones that I'm working with certainly are. They did a great study in the US to show that regenerative uh, corn producers um, who are also doing cover crops and livestock uh, were 78% more profitable than the conventional. So it really throws that like 78%. That's not just like a little bit more profitable. It's significantly more it's profitable. Huge. It's absolutely huge. And they're bringing health back into that system. They're bringing all this diversity. So it really throws this idea out the window that the industrial model is so efficient and so much more profitable. Because actually, if you look at global statistics, farmers are no more profitable than they were 120 years ago. Like the industrial model, the only ones that have won out of this are the supply like the pharmaceuticals. I mean, they're the ones that win. And actually the pharmaceutical companies are the same companies that are providing agrochemicals. So it's a really great business model because I'm going to feed you food that (laughs) has issues and has chemicals in it. And then I'm going to provide the medicine to fix it. Like, bravo, bravo. Yeah, I actually, I heard an interesting stat about that and I'm sure I'm going to get this completely wrong because I'm not very good at remembering numbers. (laughs) But it was something like in America... Um, so comparing comparisons to, I think it was like 1960 or something like that, the cost of, uh, so the average household would spend 9% of their weekly income on, uh, food. Mm -hmm. No, would spend 9% of their weekly income on uh, medical expenses and 18% of their income on food. Mm -hmm. And then today it's completely switched around the other way. So it's 18% of their income is spent on medical expenses and 9% is spent on food. Yeah, yeah. And and it's that whole yeah. Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine. And it's like, why have we forgotten that? You know, what what are you putting in your mouth? Where'd it come from? How was it growing? Um, and I think that that awareness is one of the biggest things that we can do to empower ourselves because not only does it empower our own health, you're empowering what's happening on, on the land. And um, that's what's getting me excited is that through COVID with all of the the bad things that's happening. It's also making people wake up about where does their food come from? And, you know, all my friends that do seeds or seedlings or raise chickens or eggs or whatever, they can't keep up with demand. Um, All the direct marketing beef guys are just, they're fivefold increase in sales um, because people are like, whoa, there's no food in the supermarket shelves. Where does food come from? (laughs) You know? And so... (laughs) It's it's been pretty neat to see that. Yeah, hold on a hold minute. On, hold on. I'm going to starve. It's not on the shelves. Yeah, and it's like brilliant. You know, in New Zealand, we should all have gardens, and we all did. I mean, I guess I'm older than you guys, but when I grew up, you know, we all had gardens. Everyone had a garden in the backyard and on your quarter acre section, and we've forgotten, you know, how to do the basic stuff, you know, and it's not very hard to grow enough potatoes mm-hmm. for a year. You know, that's that does that's not a huge big ask. You know, and then you know you don't have yeah. all the ag chemical on it. Yep, mm. yep. And and I think probably the the hardest part about just growing your own food is just where to start. So mm. I feel like as soon as you just start, like go yep. to Mitre 10 and say, hey, I want to, you know, grow some organic vegetables. What do I need? Give it to me. And then it's you, you just kind of trial and error. You figure it out. Yep. You learn by doing, eh? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm, yep. I've got my first ever veggie garden um, going at the moment and I planted some broccoli and cauliflower and, you know, all sorts of different things. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's a thrill. A, a month and a half ago. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. But I just, um, I just, you know, read up a little bit on organic principles and bought all the, like, you know, organic soil and compost and um, threw it all together and some organic seedlings. Mm-hmm. And it's going really well. It and just... It's, yeah. It's, it's so satisfying. I mean, it, it has a mind of its own. 
It yeah, does, like eating broccoli really that, that you know where it's come from. It's mm. in the backyard. It hasn't been sprayed with anything. It's all good quality soil. It yep. just, it feels so good. But I also think one of the things that we saw around COVID was that loneliness epidemic and, you know, the concerns for elderly. And it's like everyone's got a grandparent or there's some elderly person on your street that knows how to garden. Go and, you know, go and meet with them and go and get them to come and show you. And I bet you're going to light a whole lot of people's lives up through that process. You know, I think children need to spend more yep. time with the elderly and elderly with children. And, and like that's some of my fondest memories is, is gardening with my grandparents, you know, feeding the chickens or whatever. But, you know, mm. they have those skills and uh, who's listening? Well, hopefully you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Hey, well, on that note, you'll love this little idea that I've got, Nicole. Mm. So <laughs> I was thinking, you know, all the like berms and stuff out in front of people's houses, how it's kind of just like wasted land. Mm. Well, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if school kids could um, use that land and grow little veggie gardens in that on that land mm-hmm. and then they could be paired up with elderly in the community that could then help them do it. Yeah. And then they could sort of grow the produce, share it with the household that, you know, owns the berm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, anyway, that's my little thought. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. And I think there's a lot of communities that have been doing that. So taking back this side of the road. And I was, um, I was talking about somebody with some friends and I'm standing underneath this. Uh, it was an elder, elderberry and a persimmon that were growing on the side of the road. And it was just, we were picking these, you know, these plants and like taking the flowers and stuff. And, and, and then I realized I was standing actually outside a friend's place and she's just, she's put all these fruit trees and salad vegetables and stuff outside. And she's, you know, if anyone wants to take it, they can. And, um, you know, she maintains it, but it's like, how amazing is that? And you, if you walk around, you know, Auckland or Wellington, you see how much more diversity happens in the city than what's actually happening on the farm ground. And it's like, who's feeding the birds and who's feeding the bees and everything? It's actually people in the city. So bring it on. Hmm. Hmm. That's so true. So on the um, elderly, because I feel like our parents and grandparents, or maybe not grandparents, but parents kind of uh, hmm. during that well, like they're kind of in the middle of that generation of using uh, terrible, terrible chemicals on mm. the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how would you advise people to go about talking to their parents about that? Because I feel like I see it all the time, like just going for, for a walk, you see your neighbour spraying with Roundup here, here there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, like a little part of me dies inside mm-hmm. when I'm like, I'm trying to go to the park and breathe in this like, yeah. beautiful nature and I feel like I'm just breathing in your roundup. And you're witnessing someone killing the planet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they probably won't listen to, to this podcast. No. So how do you even talk to someone about that? I think you lead by example because otherwise um, you're just judging people, you know, and everyone's on their different length of their journey. Yeah. And I think that's that's the joy of the regenerative is that everybody's kind of in a different place in that journey and, and where they are along it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, potentially involving councils in this conversation because they're some of the biggest users. Um, I had a really cool project um, in Tauranga where the school had been spraying um, and it was an insecticide to kill earthworms. I mean, don't ask me why you're doing that. Anyway, and the kids all came out in rashes and stuff while they were playing rugby and, and it, this, the school kicked up a bit of a stink. And so um, 
the entire school actually rallied around and they started to create their own vermiculture in the school and then using that to spray um, beneficial uh, materials on the field so that they weren't spraying insecticides anymore and they just agreed that they wouldn't kill the earthworms. Um, but they engaged with the city council as well around, okay, so we're not going to be spraying this, so using steam sprayers instead and using vermiculture in Tauranga to actually improve you know, what's happening. Because if you're trying to just spray out some kind of weed and you're using a herbicide, that has never actually made a plant extinct, funnily enough. It it just creates more weeds and more weeds. So instead of doing that, we look at, you know, how do we actually change those soil conditions so we don't have those weeds growing? Um, and so I think talking to your local councils about the types of chemicals that they're using, saying, I want my street to be spray free and doing it as a community and involving community in it. Um, and so they need to start thinking outside the box because why why can't you do steam spraying mm. yeah. or vinegar or salt or anything, anything but the herbicides? <laughs> mm. Yeah, the um, steam spraying is quite cool. I, <laughs> I went out the other day to kill some weeds with the jug. I boiled the jug and just poured it on some yeah. weeds on the path. Worked well. It does. Hey, um, you just sort of made me made me think of something with the, the parks and stuff. So I um, I've had about four or five migraines in my life mm-hmm. and each of those migraines has been after I've um, been in contact with grass mm-hmm. on a like a public park mm-hmm. and and usually it's like after I'd done some form of kind of strenuous exercise as well and I wonder if like I have this theory that maybe you know I kind of stressed my body out a little bit all my defenses were down and then there was some maybe a chemical that was used on that grass then kind mm. of prompted me and and made me get a migraine Mm -hmm. yeah and I know you've had you've had a bit of um experience with toxicity and uh chemical Mm -hmm. poisoning Mm -hmm. um yeah what are your thoughts on all that and do you think that there'd be some people out there maybe some people listening that might have some sort of illnesses or ailments or something that could actually be attributed to that Totally, you know, and I think probably all of us could do with a really good chemical detox. And I'm not talking about like just eating green smoothies, although actually uh, chlorella is very powerful um, detoxer. Um, but yeah, looking at, at you know infrared saunas or um, so I did hyperbaric chamber intravenous vitamin C to flush paraquat that was sitting in my spinal fluid. So the process that I did was really really intensive and was pretty hardcore, but that's how I like it. Um, no messing about. Uh, but I, yeah. <laughs> I think um, most people are carrying a chemical loading and it's becoming to the point where some people now are having, like here in the US, and now having to move out into the middle of the wilderness and live in log cabins because they can't be in a car, they can't be around plastic, they can't be around smells. I mean, like, it's just insane. So you'll reach a certain point where the chemical loading just shuts yourself down and that's why we're seeing things like the chronic fatigues, um, yeah, major gut problems, foggy brain, migraines, all of this stuff um, is definitely linked to chemical toxicities um, and, and heavy metals as well. So we have we have some of the highest heavy metal loadings in New Zealand because of our addiction to phosphate fertilizers. Um, so we have the highest cadmium levels in the world. Um, and so that you know, maybe we're growing food that's been growing in that. Maybe that's going to have an impact or we're eating offal from animals um, that, that that we could be getting cadmium from in that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea for, for probably everybody in the planet to do a bit of a detox, just like we're asking the soil to do that. I think we all need to be doing it too. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever felt, uh, I mean, it could be just a conspiracy theory and doesn't actually happen in real life, but have you ever felt kind of threatened by Big Pharma? I say that in inverted commas. Um, because you're a huge threat to, to their profits, right? Yeah, potentially. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I think I skim under the radar under that sort of stuff. Like it's not part of my reality. So therefore I won't, but uh, friends of mine have had, um, colleagues have had death threats. Um, one of them has two attempts on his life, um, because of the threat to the ag and, you know, and it's still an open police case. So yes, yeah, so I think that, that, that kind of stuff is, oh my God. is quite real, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm quite a big one for manifestation and, and I create my my world and so I create a world that, that for me, the work that really works around me, even though I'm focusing on all this stuff that doesn't work, actually um, the world I, that I live in works. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that, I like that. Um, the Speaking of, you know, the world that works, so how can we make the world more <laughs> to become a world that works? Mm. And... I want to know, like, yeah, specifically around uh, carbon sequestration mm-hmm. into soils and how that can help with climate change. Mm. Well, I think the exciting thing um, about New Zealand is you guys are on the edge of a tipping point, and New Zealand has the potential right now. There's two ways that could go, which is they're pushing more genetic engineering and chemical stuff, or actually to go the regenerative track. And we're seeing some of the big organisations. Uh, inquiring about regenerative agriculture, research centres, you know, having it as a research agenda. Um, It's been mentioned, um, you know, in government policy. So I kind of feel like um, we have the potential in New Zealand to to really tip this if people get in behind it and, you know, rally behind this idea of actually, wouldn't it be nice if we did fulfil on our clean green image? There was a second part to your question that I kind of lost in that. What was the next part? Um, oh yeah, I wanted to know like the, I guess the mechanism behind how carbon is oh, carbon, yeah. drawn into the soil, yeah, and like and how we can make our soil healthy so that it does that. Yeah, well, I think that there's two big parts to this: is that yes, carbon is um, a carbon uh, is a is part of the the climactic story, but the biggest story is actually water. Um, and water and atmospheric moisture are the biggest drivers for the climate change. And it's the biggest part of the climate model. And it was ignored for so long because they were like, oh, well, humans can't be influencing it, but actually we are. Um, and we influence through our land use. So if we have tilled fields, if we're cultivating, if we're spraying it out, we're actually changing water dynamics in the atmosphere. So, um, and that's also affecting carbon. So carbon and water always go hand in hand and same with nitrogen. So those those elements are all intimately linked. So when I talked about carbon being pumped through the plant from the process of photosynthesis, um, they partner up with a specific fungi, but also different types of microbiology where they are pumping that carbon molecule deeper into the soil where it's actually held. And um, carbon's really the reason that we we can live on this planet. We're all carbon-based organisms, but it's also the currency of the planet. So what um, generates energy, what is given in exchange for life, for nutrients or whatever. Um, so, yeah, the concern with too much carbon in the atmosphere is that because it generates energy, it's creating um, excessive heat. So the biggest um, 
I mean, the sea is one of the biggest drawdowns, obviously, of carbon, but in the terrestrial environment, it's soil more than trees. And so we've got this big, you know, billion-dollar tree focus, which, you know, it's marvellous, and I hope that they're going to really focus on native trees, not not pine trees. Um, but if we really want to be talking about carbon and methane and nitrous oxide and all these the, the, the climate mitigators, it's about good soil management, having living, green, growing plants all year round, not getting into feedlots, not locking land up out of production, but how do we ensure that that whole system is functional so that we have soils that are acting like a sponge? And so if you look at the New Zealand example this season, um, one of the biggest droughts on record, we are creating soil environments that no longer hold on to water and actually repel water in many cases. And so we end up with what happened in Edgecombe a few years ago, we end up with these flash floods because soil is no longer functioning, it's no longer holding on to water, and now any bit of water that you got is gone, and then within two weeks people are in a drought. And it's a land management issue is a big part of it, and that land management's actually affecting global water cycles. And so it's all intimately connected. So if we can improve how our soil and ground cover's functioning, we can actually influence um, global um, climactic systems, which is really, really wild to think about. But some of the people that I work with are seeing that they are altering their local rainfall dynamics through what they're doing um, above ground, which is amazing. And there were some good studies in Montana and Saskatchewan to show that if you do, are doing chemical fallow, which is where they spray everything out, that the, it changes the atmospheric barrier and it basically pushes clouds away. So we're geoengineering on a lot of our landscapes by not having green growing plants. Wow. So if you are a um, regenerative farm, then you can withstand so much more. So if much there's more. a drought, you can get through it yep. so much better. That's incredible. I mean, I feel like this needs to be widespread. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm. And so there's farmers in New yeah. Zealand that are doing this that are, you know, vocally talking about what they're doing and you know the amount of ground cover they've got and what they're growing despite it being really dry Mm. um okay so what is i mean it sounds like a you know it's i mean for people like us sitting here who aren't farmers and don't know how to run a farm it's in it sounds like a no-brainer why wouldn't you be why wouldn't you switch to regenerative agriculture Mm -hmm. so why is it hard for farmers to switch to regenerative agriculture and what are the roadblocks um, well, like I was describing again, it's really our structural systems. And this was part of my master's thesis that I didn't finish was on this very topic, but there's structural constraints that make it very difficult for you to change because this is the advice you're getting. These are all the products that you're getting. This is what your neighbors are doing. Um, and this, yeah, the advice, the universities, all of it's all caught up into this, the chemical neoliberal kind of view of the world um and so that takes a lot of courage to to maybe not do that because your neighbors are going to take it personally as well if you change your system and go well i can see this is happening blah 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 then you come up against when the neighbors go and so you telling me i'm wrong um and that's you know i hear that all the time mm. of like actually many of these farmers end up changing their social groups because they don't want to talk about drench they don't want to talk about the chemicals um the conversation just totally changes and um that's that can be terrifying um but i think because we are mm. 
reaching this solid mass in New Zealand, I think you are going to see it change really fast because those structural changes are, are coming and are happening. Um, and so, yeah, I feel very excited about what's happening in New Zealand. I just wish this had happened like five years ago because I would have stayed in New Zealand, but now my base is over here. Yeah, right. uh, well, well yeah. hopefully you'll be back one day. Yeah, yeah COVID allowing. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think things are changing. I know that there's been a recent law change to limit the amount of nitrogen that can be put into our uh, onto our soils. Do you know much about that? I have heard that some people say it's not the not strict enough. No, it's not strict enough because it's 160 units, I believe. So um, most regenerative producers are probably using less than 20 units. Um, but if, if, you, <laughs> wow. if you propose that to most um, farmers, they think that their throats are being slit. Um, and their science backs up, you know, if you drop your nitrogen, you're going to drop production. But that's because they don't change anything else. It's like if you have a system that's used to these kind of inputs and then you cut them, of course you're going to drop production. Whereas if you totally change your system, no, your production uh, should maintain, but actually we're growing better quality. So there's, you know, and less costs and, and all of that. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, I think it's a real shame and I uh, – um, you know, I was in a meeting with a government official who said, you know, she really hoped that um, New Zealand farmers would do this themselves and they wouldn't require legislation and restrictions and banning and stuff to change behaviour. But she felt like they'd got to such a point where the farmers had been given such warnings that now that all was left was legislation. And I think that was actually really unfair um, on the government side of things because they actually haven't provided the support and advice and structures so that farmers could understand how do you reduce nitrogen. You know, the biggest limitation to mm. nitrogen and why you need it is because your soils are compacted. Well, 80% of New Zealand dairy farm soils has significantly compacted soils and no one's talking about it. Um, and so I feel like the social structures in New Zealand have let farmers down because, um, you know, they, they believe they've been given the best advice in the world and they're told you New Zealand farmers are some of the best farmers in the world. Um, but actually, that's it, it's not true, unfortunately, um, because, yeah, it's just more and more of that, that chemical paradigm. And so, yeah, I think it's disappointing um, in a lot of ways that government's going to have to come in and say, oh, yeah, you can't do this or you can't, you, you know, you can't have these kind of animals or you have to turn this into a forestry block, which actually those trees are going to, have to be cut down at some point and you're going to lose all the soil. Like I really don't think that pine plantations are a solution to this either um but farmers have not been given mm -hmm. good advice and actually that knowledge bank exists in New Zealand um and farmers just need to step outside of their usual structures and find that information yeah when you you just mentioned um the soil 80% of soil is compacted what does that mean does that mean it's like lost you know lost all of its nutrients and maybe it's all out of balance and then what is, is it just like physically compacted down yeah, just physically compacted down so that means there's no air space water space and if you think of um like how long a system can function without breathing not very long so your root systems are very shallow the microbiology aren't breathing um that whole nitrogen cycle just collapses so now you need to put nitrogen on um yeah, so compaction is a is a is is the number one limitation to yield and production. Right. Okay. How long does it take to transform a farm? Say your average farm that we're just talking about here, dairy farm, mm -hmm. transform it back to a, a healthy farm with healthy soil. 
Well, we've seen some pretty remarkable stuff happen in New Zealand. We are a temperate rain-fed environment, so actually we can do it really, really quickly. Depends on what your limitation is. But we're seeing some pretty dramatic changes within about six weeks. You know, if you have a soil that's compacted, we can address that pretty quickly. Um, if you have a soil where water's not going in, we can address that pretty quickly. So um, it doesn't mean you have this pristine soil, but uh, your limiting factors are things that we can actually address and then have a system that starts to heal and self-regulate. And But, yeah, it depends why your soil's not functioning in the first place. So we have to really address what's happening with management. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel mm. like we have a competitive advantage in New Zealand. We have the ability to provide, like, quality niche produce to the world. You know, like, why are we on the commodity market? Like, it just seems so <laughs> reckless. Like, oh, yeah, let's supply as much dairy milk powder to China and that's all we're going to do and put all the eggs in one basket. Like, hello. Um, and so, you know, I think we have an opportunity because people do think we are clean and green until they visit, you know, and I've had so many friends visit New Zealand and come back and just be absolutely gutted because they can see the farming practices and see the water quality and go, oh, well, that wasn't what I was expecting, you know, unless they go up into the Southern Alps or something and then it's really beautiful and pristine. But, yeah, and even then it's not that pristine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And it's amazing how how quickly you kind of get used to how crappy most of our rivers are. Mm. Like we, because we see them all the time, and we just think, oh yeah, yeah, that's polluted, that's polluted. Oh, that's a shame, that's polluted. But like when you stop and think about it, you think like these were once beautiful, mm. you know, pristine rivers and that, our lakes that you could as well. swim in. Like, and our lakes. I want to know about Lake Rotorua. Like, yeah. That's such an awesome spot, but no one swims in it because it's polluted. Yeah, it'll kill you. And you'd think that's really only been in the last 10 years. So, I mean, it's it's in our very recent memory. And that's why I left New Zealand as well, as I just couldn't stomach it anymore because I know how simple these fixes are and really feeling like no one was listening and just go, look, I, I can't have it in my face all the time, like just that. Because there were rivers that we would swim in and mm. fish in and that we couldn't fish in anymore. There were fish turning up with these fungal diseases caused by hormones from agriculture. And I'm like, really? This is in like uh, right up, um, yeah, that some Ruatanifa uh, River, like some beautiful rivers in Hawke's Bay that were unswimmable. Um, yeah, and so that was a big driver for me to leave because it's easier to be somewhere where you don't know what the difference was. Like, I don't know what America looked like 20 years ago, you know, whereas I knew, you know, yeah. the, right. these are the rivers we could swim in. So my son would go down to the river and I'm like, make sure you don't put your head under the water. And, you know, like, why should I have to say that? Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's such a shame. And and they, like, um, turn, turn the rating for you can't go go in it to like it's wadeable. Yeah. You know? It's like I mean that means really Like why do I want to wade in some water? It's sort of like, okay, so it's still polluted, but at least I can put my calves into it. You know, it it just kind of seems a bit crazy that that's even something to defend. But hey. Yeah. Um there are there are ways to um to fix it, which is great. Yeah. So uh Nicole, your book, um, For the Love of Soil, mm -hmm. this is essentially a Bible <laughs> for, for farmers. It, I mean, it seems to have like it's incredible. so much information. It's amazing. Right. Um, so how can people buy it? Is it in um, stores here? 
what calls paper plus that sort of thing or be, just online it, it is available at the supplies to bookstores so it would be great if you went down to your local bookstore and said to your bookstore can you please supply for the love of soil um because you know it's a new zealand awesome. book there's a lot of new zealand stories in there and i think you know buy a copy for your farming friends or for your grandparents that are still using chemicals this neighbor down the road that sprang roundup um you know, the idea behind it was that it would still be readable for a non-farming audience as well. I mean, um, when I was talking to the publishers, they wanted me to make it really technical. And I was like, well, actually, I want it to be readable. So um, hopefully it's readable. But it's Yeah, that's still, what I love about it. Yeah. And I've put things in boxes. So like if it's really technical, it's like, here's it in the box. So you can just skip past it if you don't want the technical <laughs> stuff. But I think for even home yeah. gardeners to think about, you know, what, what are the chemicals and what are the options so that if you don't want to be using those, what are the other things you could be doing to just bring more life to your, to your backyard? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I also like, I mean, I find it fascinating just understanding uh, or getting an understanding of the system underneath our feet and the microbes mm. and how alive it all is, you know, it's I, not something to be dominated. No. Mm. Oh God, Nicole! I just want you to be our prime minister. Yeah, so do I. And actually, <laughs> on that, cool hey, if you, could, if you could, oh, she's, she she's is great. great. She, mm-hmm. yeah. Hey, just she quickly, if you could change a law in um in the states yes. and a law in New Zealand, what would you change? Oh, a law. Um. Oh, that's a bit yeah. intense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's too big. I don't think about changing laws. Yeah. I think it's about. Too- like, Fair enough. Yeah. Where do you even start? Where do you even start? I know. Yeah. Yeah, I could think of some people I'd like to get rid of. <laughs> you know an interesting law change? Everyone's got to wear hats like in the 1920s on yeah. Fridays or something. Yeah, Friday <laughs> hat day. That's a good one. Well, I think um, it might be good to have a law where um, people have a mandatory amount of time to spend in the forest without devices. I think that would be oh. my law. Yeah, yeah. One day a week, yeah. no device, no that. electronics, and you're in the forest by yourself, like just to be with, or with animals, you know, like take a dog or whatever, but without humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the flow-on effects for that, I think, would, would be pretty phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Um, I got the chance hey, to get about that. Nicole, if people want to um, follow you or learn more about the stuff that you're doing, how do or they work with you. contact you or, you know, follow you on social media? How do they do it? Yeah. Instagram masters.nicole um facebook uh, integrity soils is my company so we're based in australia and new zealand and north america um so yeah really encourage you to get hold of integrity soils and our website um integritysoils.co.nz um and yeah probably maybe not get hold of me <laughs> my emails are just getting out of control. I'm, I'm actually going to go and take a five-week oh, hiatus away from the email and just like, oh, it just seemed yeah. like everyone went online. Everyone suddenly. listening, just buy the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read the book. Read the book a couple of times and then get in touch with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's such a huge issue and I suppose there are so many people that would just love access to the knowledge that you've got because it really is um, going to change the planet, I think. I feel excited. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message and leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. (laughs) 
<laughs> or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye. Bye.